the whole thing ties to how we now uh, do science because b before you had prestigious journals and you had, it was very expensive it's still very expensive to publish there but now people are asking for more open access you know open science open data so i think this is shifting and in this world of anyone can publish basically you need also ways to stand out and to have something the strong visuals to make sure that people will actually read your paper because if you have 100,000 papers to read your human you, you will probably find one that has a, a good title and like nice images and then you start to read and see whether or not it's a good paper. So I think, as you said, it now we put art and science under the same roof just to have our research discovered, I would say. has always been about improving human understanding of our universe, but scientists have not always prioritized accessibility of their hard-won results. The deeper research digs into specialized subfields and daunting data sets, the greater the divide a team must cross to help communicate their findings, not just to the public, but to other scientists. It's cliche. A picture's worth a thousand words. But it's the truth. Strong visual communication helps readers make the choice to dig into dense manuscripts and helps journal editors decide whose work gets published in the first place. Good data viz can get complexity across in less time and with less effort, help public audiences grasp science better, and appreciate the beauty that inspired their research to start with. Deciding how to represent research in graphic form is both a little science and a little art. It takes developing an understanding of what information matters and what doesn't, and how other people will absorb it. Thus, it should come as no surprise that in our noisy era, the data artist rises as a hero of both fields, empowered by technology to bridge dissociated disciplines and help us all learn more and better. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute, the world's foremost complex system science research organization. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and each week we'll bring you with us with far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of researchers, rigorous scientists and mathematicians, philosophers and artists, developing new frameworks, tools, and theories to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This is a show about your world and the people who have dedicated their lives to exploring and explaining their stories, research, and insights. Join us for an adventure into complexity. This week's episode is with Karel Benzi, a data artist and data visualization lecturer who holds a PhD in data science from EPFL. Karel's work has been shown in outlets as diverse as the Swiss National Museum, Gizmodo, Vice, and Fizz.org. In this recording, we discuss his projects mapping the Montreux Jazz Festival and the Star Wars Extended Universe, the future of neural network-assisted data visualization, and how data art helps with the technical and ethical challenges facing science communication in the 21st century. Before we start, we'd like to inform you of upcoming opportunities with SFI. Applications are now open for the 2020 Graduate Workshop in Computational Social Science, the 2020 Global Sustainability Summer School, the 2020 Journalism Fellowship, and a number of other staff and research positions. Learn more at santafe.edu. For transcripts, show notes, research links, and more, please visit complexity.simplecast.com. And if you enjoy this show, please help us reach a wider audience by leaving a review at Apple Podcasts or sharing the show on social media. Thank you for listening. Karel Benzi, it's a pleasure to have you on Complexity Podcast. Thank you very much for hosting me. Yeah, so uh, this is a little bit more off the cuff than I'm used to with this show. Uh, I, you just came and gave a very interesting presentation on your work here at the Santa Fe Institute, but I haven't had weeks to steep myself in your thesis and publications and prior work like I normally do. So uh, I hope that our listeners enjoy something a little bit more informal and uh, freewheeling. But let's, let's start with your history, your background. You talk a little bit about this on the site, but I'd be curious to know what inspired you to get into data art in the first place, you know, in your childhood and, and in your PhD program and so on. Like what, what brought you to the point that you are today? Okay. So I, I started doing digital art when I was really young, I would say. 
but I was always fascinated with computers. So I quickly oriented myself uh, towards a career in, uh, in software engineering first, and then I decided to, uh, to do a PhD in, in data science. But I was missing this, you know, this part of myself that I, I used to uh, like, was, which was about passion and, and art. And what I said in the talk is that people have been asking me, um, so what, what are you doing? And I was not really sure um, the best way of explaining them to how, what I was actually doing. And, you know, they were asking me this just out of courtesy. It was just not, they were not really interested in what I was doing. <laughs> so, you know, you know this. Uh, uh, so I realized maybe, okay, maybe I could, should start to visualize stuff and, you know, get interested in the field in data visualization. And then I realized, okay, maybe, but what I do could be maybe turned into something more aesthetic, artistic. And, uh, and in fact, it, it all started with the publication I did on Star Wars, and my favorite uh, universe. <laughs> and, and, you know, and there was, like, at the time, it was a lot of coverage, actually, uh, all over the world. And people were saying in the comments, oh, look at this amazing, beautiful uh, data visualization. And... And uh, to me, when I look at it, it's not beautiful. It's something that we do here every day in network visualization. And say, so, okay, maybe if there's an interest here, I should investigate that and see if I can like reconcile both my like early passion and what I do right now. And this is how I really start to think about the new ways to basically do science communication using art. And this is where I am today, trying to blend both of both words, basically. So actually, I would love for you to get into a little bit more detail about the Star Wars project, because, you know, just the methodology of it. This is dipping into a broader question, and I think this will be a good example of this broader question, which is, uh, as you mentioned in your talk today, uh, often, you know, data visualization and data art are about selecting the relevant data, like I used to work as a scientific illustrator. And the reason that I was still getting jobs in an era of photography and, and, you know, high resolution mechanical imaging was because these photographs have too much information, right? So it, it seems like a huge piece of what you're doing is actually like coarse graining and downsampling and deciding what information counts and what doesn't and how that works in telling a story. So like, let's, let's dive into that through this particular project and why you selected the, the, the data points you did and so on. Okay. So the Star Wars project, just to, to recap, the idea was to create a network of characters of all the Star Wars characters. So let me, just a quick precision here. Uh, you know, that Star Wars now has been bought by Disney, right? And, what I did was on the Star Wars Expanded Universe, which is not, not canon anymore, right? So yeah. just for the fans here, I'm just... Um, okay, so the, this Expanded Universe includes the movies, of course, but the, the books, the, the, the video games, anything, everything related to, to Star Wars. And so the idea was to go on this website, Wikipedia. So it's a Wikipedia, but only for Star Wars. And if you, if you go on there now, you would find that there's more than 150,000 pages being created by, by people. So like referencing uh, the characters, of course, but the planets, the factions, the everything about Star Wars. And being a huge fan, uh, to me, was the perfect opportunity to uh, get some of the data because it's, it's free, basically, and uh, create this network of characters. So the idea is that first you have to create the, in, to index all the characters in, the, in this universe. And it was not that easy to do. So I had to, to write a small uh, Python program, a robot, to basically crawl and get all the pages. Then uh, on each biography, the idea is to look for other names. So because now you have this index of all the characters, so you can look whether or not uh, it's one of the characters is cited in the biography. So it means that it's that probably they interacted in some way. But we have to be careful in the Star Wars universe that you know there's ghosts, so phantoms can appear three thousand years later. So it's <laughs> there's a, it's not really a, you cannot make the. It's not the same like uh, with our own real history. And just for the fact that, you know, Star Wars spans over 37,000 years of, a, of history, so it's very big. And the idea here was that, as a scientist, this was really also interesting because now if you start to develop new tools and algorithms to explore this fictional universe, you could apply exactly the same tools for our own real universe. And so, but because it, it's very difficult to, to get uh, sometimes, like, imagine in the Middle Ages, if in Europe, to get all the, the different languages, they're basically gone. No one speaks them anymore. So just to get the data and digitize them and be able to explain stuff, it's very difficult. And it's not exactly my, my core 
study. So I said, okay, let's focus on developing new tools and methods to get on this easy, I would say, fictional universe because it's in English, it's accessible, you get, get it on the web, and then uh, try to find, uh, I don't know, interesting uh, clusters, points, something that would actually make sense. And when I started doing this, this project, it was really about giving an idea of what, uh, how big the universe was. And, uh, and it was, it's actually very big. It's 20, more than 20,000 uh, characters. And it was the first time, this is why it, it got a lot of coverage at that time. It was because it was the first time we could have an idea of how big the Star Wars expanded universe uh, uh, was. So this is how it started. And then people have been making comments, ah, oh, this is uh, beautiful. It was not artistic at that time. And then I started to improve on the visualization techniques to make it more uh, emotional. And this is basically how I started to uh, work around to do data art. So what were those improvements? Like what did you tweak in order to make the work more emotionally compelling? Okay, so first, okay, this is my personal preferences, right? But first, use a black background, right? To make it more dramatic, right? I would say. But it's, it's not only that. Um, so here, even if you look at it, if you look it up, the shape of the network is really, it's difficult to describe, but all the principal characters are at the center of the piece. And as you would go uh, around, so that the less and less popular characters are spread out in a way that reminds you of uh, like in a galaxy, I would say, but not as a, like a starry night. It's just like something more, I don't know, um, that uh, draw, draws the, the, the audience into the piece. So and then for to, to create this effect, I basically had to tweak the network visualization techniques because they are, if you use them like like a standard scientific uh, standard scientific way, you would be always get this more or less the same shapes. So m part of my job now is to uh, take some uh, some algorithms that we use in in science, but basically tweak them, uh, break them, and change them to make so to create emotional pieces, which but but which cannot really be uh, created just out of the box with the standard techniques because. In these techniques, you want, you want to highlight particular clusters or artifacts or things that, that are this interesting for scientists to see in the data. But here, because the goal is to create more emotions, you want to maybe focus more on, on the shapes overall. You know, what, what is the, the effect the piece does when you look at it from afar, from up close? And it's not necessarily uh, um, the best way to represent the, as a scientific data, but Probably maybe it's a, another way, an interesting way to get the audience attracted to the, the whole uh, idea and uh, of the art itself. And at the end, on the scientific uh, like uh, techniques and, and that we use to create the piece. So yeah, one, one of the things I'm curious about that I don't remember you mentioning in the talk was the edge lengths in this. Is is that based on the number of co-occurrences, or was that an artistic decision? So the length, the thing is, so it's a very good question. Um, in network viz, the problem is that it's because the network is uh, n d-dimensional space, right? The number of nodes, uh, you have to make an embedding into 2D or 3D, so you have to make compromises. And if the graph is not really planar, you cannot. There's no way you can embed it and keep all the distances perfectly correct. So you have to make compromises, and what the algorithm is, will try to do is to minimize the edge length to have something a bit centered. And even like most of pieces will actually. Uh, be centered uh, around like a circle shape. So you have to break that, but in this particular case, no. The edge length does, is, doesn't mean, it, it's a way to embed it into the plane. And this is the cool thing about this is, because it doesn't really represent uh, like the similarity or just a uh, distance, is that you can put the nodes a bit where you want. So you can create more dramatic effect uh, by using this uh, uh, particular property of the graph. So no, in this particular case, no. Some other cases, because they are planar, you can, you can do this. So two things came up for me watching you speak about this particular project, one of which was recently we had Matthew Jackson of Stanford on, and you know he does uh, network economic research. And in his book, The Human Network, there's a, a, a chapter where he's explaining the different kinds of network centrality and how those different kinds of centrality quantify different kinds of social influence that a person has and how those different kinds of influence, you know, relate to one another. And he gives a really uh, profound example of the de Medici family. And he shows how de Medici was, you know, not powerful on certain measures, you know, didn't have the most wealth, wasn't in one sense, the most important character to everyone else in Florence at the time. But 
if you look at the network map, then you actually see that he and his family through intermarriages stood at the very center of that, of that map. And, you know, uh, it, it, it's akin to, especially the way that you, you said you wrote this bot that scraped, um, Wikipedia, that there is, uh, it, it scraped by taking hot links between the names of the different characters. And this reminded me of the text modeling work done by another one of our external professors, Simon Dedeo, and how he's used text modeling in this way through historical documents like the parliamentary papers of during the French Revolution to model who held the most influence at any given time. So I'm just curious, like how much that other than simply like revealing a beautiful image, how much the narrative component of it and like the revelations of the of of creating a map like this figure into the way that you think about this and if you've been working with researchers like Simon and and Matt um yeah like what what kind of stuff has come out of that and what kind of insights so it's it's interesting because you were talking about centrality and it's something that I use all the time in all my networks basically to uh, as a prior to layout the piece so I, I this is very important information to uh, be able to uh, right, decipher because it's it's very big right who are the main uh, protagonists main characters and and so in the star wars piece of course you would expect this to be the emperor and darth vader because they are the, they are the most connected so they have the, actually the highest score in the, it, whether so you have different measure of centrality but they all uh, in this particular case they were all they are the highest for the both of these uh, characters and uh, so this is a very important measure, and we use it all the time. I have another example of this, uh, a funny one. So when I was doing my PhD, you know, every four years the, there's a new president at EPFL. So, and, and I had to make a piece actually uh, on EPFL uh, staff. So I used the same techniques to try to understand who was the most central uh, character. It turns out that this character became president of EPFL. <laughs> and, 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 and so after and after and I didn't know about it but it was it's really interesting because you said that's really so you had the most conne- connection with everyone in, in the school and at the same time you had the, like one of the highest cited number of citations and you could say for once like we can use this network uh, measures to understand and to elect and to you know vote for a new president and of course it was not the case but I think it was an interesting fact that they basically it was like pure merit in this case, according to this network centrality measure. And to create the, this network, uh, what we uh, we did was to extract all the papers from all the scientists uh, over the... APFL is actually pretty young uh, universities. And last year was this 50th anniversary. But we took all the papers and found out, so connected them, connected by co, let's say, I would say, co-citations or, you know, on all the, the actors at EPFL, and we found out so like most of the core professors were very were connected and they were competing for the presidency at some point and you know, <laughs> and so it was funny and and also this uh, uh, the president of EPFL has also the the highest number of patents so I made another piece uh, which he has in his office and the funny thing is so you know it's a nice way to highlight uh, that you're here and you are the most connected because you have the, the, the one the top three num- number of patents and so this kinds of measures there. They, they really mean something in the real world. It's not just something that we use uh, uh, as a scientific tool. But as you can see here, um, it, it represents a real reality that we can that chase basically uh, what's happening. So I'm not sure if that, if that answers your question, but yeah. there's something that we use uh, that I use all the time. And because it, it's something that when we interact as humans, basically if you have connections, if you have influence, if you have followers, it, it, it means something. And this is a way of characterizing this uh, it does seem like the the question of whether or not it is or is not an ethical tool to select people who might be eligible for a promotion, I think is, you know, there's always that. It's yeah. Itchy. Okay. okay. <laughs> but it's interesting. It's, it's a measure. Then we, we, we decide collectively whether or not we want to use it, whether or not it's ethical or not, but it, it exists and it really represents a, a part of the reality. So right next to this is the work that you did for the Montreux Jazz Festival, which I thought was just extraordinary because it's it's a, taking a similar approach and then uh, using it to to draw this this map of of influence and collaboration of all of these amazing musicians that like people will recognize. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about your relationship with 
with Montreux and with the, you know, how you built this thing and then the, the dome installation. This is a very, very cool project. Okay, so, so the, the collaboration is, is between the Montreux Jazz and the EPFL, which is in charge of digitizing all the archives. So basically the story of the Montreux Jazz is, so it's a very famous uh, music festival. It's been on for 43 years now, I think. So the creator of the festival had all the archives in his chalet in, in Montreux, which is uh, next to Lausanne in Switzerland. And the thing is, what happens if, if there's a fire? We lose like something that is like invaluable, right? So the idea was, okay, maybe we should involve another university because it's non-profit, right? So to be able to digitize and, and let people create new research projects out of this data, let also people explore and be able to uh, listen to the concert, watch them, and things, like, and, and things like this. So this collaboration, we started a long time ago, basically seven years ago, and I did part of my PhD also on this, uh, this data set. It was really interesting. I created some uh, data viz about the location of all the, the artists, and uh, the connection in terms of musical similarity. So here for this, we had to extract some, uh, like the notes, the rhythm, and using middle machine learning to, to match basically artists if they sound the same. So, and this is sort of similar to like the, like a Pandora recommendation yes. algorithm? Spotify, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And actually, back in the day, we made a startup about uh, doing music recommendation, which actually was really cool. Didn't really succeed in the end, but uh, we had some cool ideas. and. If I might say, they're not still there yet. So I'm just going to give you, because I'm teasing you, I'm going to give you one idea that we had out of the world. That maybe if some guy from Spotify listens to this, okay, man, you can take it. But the idea was this. You could select any artist, any song that you liked, and it would give you the best transition between all of them. So it means you could start with metal and jazz and say, give me a playlist which is smooth to the ear. And it would gradually go from one song to the other. Do you think this exi- I don't think this exists here yet. I think that the world has already been super saturated with human DJs, so we might as well put at least a few of them out of work. Yeah. yeah. It, was, it, was, <laughs> it was the, the idea. But, and, and the thing is, you could add like three, four key points. So now I want to start the party at, at eight when guests come in. There's some sm- smooth jazz music, but you know that at 10, I want to dance, right? And I don't want to be around my, my iPhone trying to play and, and switch. So let it do automatically all the, all the work. So it was a cool idea, it was a research project, and it, this started for the Montreux Jazz because uh, it's a um, live concert. So there's not exactly the same version that you would find in, stu- in albums, and studio albums. So, so we needed a way to be able to ex- and explore this data set, and for that we needed to be able to recommend it to people. So what we did is we created this app, and at the Montreux Jazz Festival people could listen and, and create th- these kinds of playlists between all the, the music from the concert. And just to give you an idea, there is more than uh, 40,000 songs already in the Montreux Jazz. So it's an exclusive. You cannot uh, listen to them anywhere else. It's a re- really cool, you know, like a Sting uh, version of something. Then you would go to Queen. and So I had access to all these songs, but I cannot, of course, uh, I could not keep them. It would have been great. But so th- this, was, this was the idea. And so for the dome installation, uh, we wanted to, uh, so it's a collaboration, I have to say, with uh, Professor uh, Sarah Kenderdine, which uh, is actually in charge of the, the Art Lab Museum at the PFL. So th- it's a museum dedicated to the collaboration between uh, uh, projects between art and science. And we did this with the company that I'm currently working with, Equino. And so we, we created this installation with, with them. Basically, so you have this, this big network of all the artists that played in the, in the jazz, and you connect them if they're being playing together on stage. On, in one particular concert, but because the, the artists they come uh, each each year, for instance, BB Kim came 13 times in the Montreux Jazz. Each time when he when he came, he brought a new set, maybe of uh, one different drummer, a different bassist, different uh, um, guitarist, and and so when you connect them all together, you would find that they they create this very high concentrated community around very key central artists, and would connect every artist to the Montreux Jazz because they all know each other at some point. And if you, if you go at the core of the network, like the most connected person, if you look at the music genre, you would find that it's uh, mostly jazz or blues. Because the, the music itself uh, calls for collaboration, right? You want to do a jam, you want to invite people going on stage and playing, let's, let, let's do this, this song, this classic. And this is why over time, over 50 years of data, you connect and you have a very large network, connected network of artists. And so this installation is interactive. So it means that you can play. It's like a small planetarium, I would say. It's a full dome installation. And you basically look up. You have this uh, spherical controller that we, what we built. And then we can, when you move it around, it, you have this fisheye effect. So you can zoom on part of the, the network 
and when you click of course you will load the artist then all these concerts and then all, you can basically play each concert or each song of each concert one of the things that i like about this is like you said a lot a lot of people were swapping band members and bringing in new people we all know you know bb king miles davis herbie hancock chick korea santana but I love that this allows you to be like, oh my God, that bassist is really good. I'm going to follow that bassist over a decade and see all of the gigs that they played with everyone else. And, you know, that that is something that the typical ways that we tell history tend to, you know, the, the, the human compression algorithm or whatever, you know, the way that we have to reduce things into narrative makes it so that it like history is told by the winners. But then here's an opportunity to tell the story in a hundred different ways that are not about the star players that are about these people that are largely in the background. And so in a way that this kind of research seems really hopeful to me for not just identifying who has the greatest influence, but identifying who has been standing behind those people. Exactly. And then of course, dome installations are just awesome. Yes. And uh, they're actually very hard to, uh, I mean, to create. It's, it's very also expensive to, to move them around, of course, as you would expect. It's difficult because you have, you have to be able to look at the piece in every angle, right? You, you can have the 360 view of the, of the whole piece. And so in terms of interaction, for instance, when you play uh, like a, a video, uh, how do you make sure that people can see it on the correct angle in all over the dome, right? So what we did was to put them into circles and have different circles rotated so that wherever you stand on, on, in, in the dome, you can still see correctly, I mean, the, the whole uh, uh, concert. So it was a bit challenging in terms of uh, realization instead of just, uh, you know, having a screen that, that everyone knows about. So I want to jump here because uh, another part of your presentation was about faces and using GANs to create artwork. And this is, this was really, you know, this is different than the network architecture diagrams. I'd love to hear you talk more about using artificial intelligence to make data art and how you see this as an extension. Cause it seems to me like it involves a good deal more artistic discretion and uh, it's a lot less of like a strict adherence to data visualization. And so I'd love to hear how you got into this and like, you know, how you've been working in that space as well. Okay. So yeah, you're perfectly, I mean, absolutely right. It's, it's different because uh, if you look at the result of a GAN, it, it doesn't tell you anything about the data underlying. Uh, Maybe the best thing to do is assume no knowledge on the part of the listener and, t- and talk a so, little bit about this okay. particular technology. So, so, so the idea here is you have two networks. So it's a machine, artificial intelligence, right? It's a machine learning algorithm that allows you to basically synthesize new uh, faces, uh, images, sound, uh, anything basically. So first you have to train it. You give him like a lot of images. And in this particular example, uh, so you, there's actually a, a thousand different objects that you give him and uh, give as an input. And the idea is that you train it to be able to f- understand what an image is. So as you would do with your own eyes, right? So the, this, I don't know, decipher the color, the shape, the pattern, the textures. And once the network can, okay, knows about this, there's another one just behind it that actually tries to mimic and to, re- and to um, generate fake data. And, to, and, and so this is the first one, sorry. And the second one tries to identify whether or not the image that you generate is true or fake. So at the beginning, it's uh, generating noise. So of course, the, the other network, the discriminator would say, no, it, it, it's, it's fake. It's not the real dog, for instance. But as the algorithm improves, because both are you know, training one next to each other. So they, they converge to something. At the end, uh, when you do the, the training right, the image that you generate are so close to the real images that the, the discriminator cannot say whether or not this is fake or real. And this is how you can gen- synthesize like deep fakes, for instance. So now with the technology that we have right now, the images that we create are so realistic that most people will not... Um, you have to really look very cl- closely to see if something is wrong. But otherwise, if you just look, look at it like this, you would say, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a picture. So, the, so this is the idea of GANs, but you can use GANs to synthesize new sound. For instance, people have been doing this for uh, classical music and being able to generate uh, uh, Bach, you know, like, okay, it's like, you know, it's not the real deal, but it's, I would say for people who are not really trained into classical music, they would, yeah, it would sound like what would uh, Bach would, would, would do, right? So it's interesting technology. And here the idea is to, can we, how can we leverage this technology to, 
uh, talk about artificial intelligence in, in, in general and get people interested into learning more about it and not being scared by the headlines that we hear all the time, right? I'm going to be replaced by a robot, and then you have a Terminator, right, uh, as an image. It's always like this, right? <laughs> no? And you also you have people like our digital influencers, right, that talk about it, but they are not really qualified to talk about it. So they, and because they have uh, 300,000 followers, that what they say carries some weight. So the idea here is, okay, maybe it's better for you to get the opinion from yourself, so get interested into knowing it, because we're going to use AI a lot more in the future. It's going to be, like, everywhere. So better know it now and not be scared because we're always scared of something we don't understand. And the idea to get people interested into learning more about it is that, okay, maybe can we create artistic shapes based on the scans, the same technology, and see that it's not that scary after all. And so this, this is how I started to... So it's based on data, right? Because you need data to train the whole uh, neural network and you also need data to generate uh, new uh, images, you know, faces or abstract images. But it would not, as you said, it's not the actual depiction uh, like of the underlying data that you have. It's a more uh, creative, I would say, representation. I'm reminded, I forget who the team was that actually did this, but a couple of years ago, somebody fed hundreds of thousands or millions of training images into an algorithm that was supposed to spit out what the internet looks like. And it was a cat, you know, that it had, it had made its own uh, cat image. And so that that was in that, <laughs> that's a bit of a ridiculous example, but it got a lot of traction, you know, in the, in the press, in that sense, there does seem to be a really obvious link in, you know, like your biography says that the very nature of data art, the purpose of data art is to render a hidden mass visible. And so in that sense, again, it's, it's about reducing the number of dimensions so that it's actually something that a human can comprehend that there's something about trying to imagine the internet as this, like what Timothy Morton, Rice University philosopher, Timothy Morton calls it, would call it a hyper object, you know, something that is so vast and uh, so extensive in time and, and so many dimensional that it's impossible for us to conceive. Right. And so how do you do that in an honest way is a really interesting question. You've done some really interesting work on GANs, like the GAN that you trained on plastic trash and then gave an image of, was it Dubai? Yes. yes. Yeah. So like, we cannot say it. Huh? Oh. I'm not sure if we can. I don't want to offend the people over there. But, uh. Well, we're, we're all full of microplastics at this point. The Dubai is not unique in that regard. Um, you know, but at any rate, yeah, there's, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm curious where else, how else you've applied this particular technique in order to make a statement that is still beholden to, you know, scientific standards of like, in, you know, it's, it's like, this is an area where, like I said, I think you have a lot more room to play artistically, but I'm curious what kind of scientific messages you're trying to communicate with this specifically, other than just, you should be more interested in AI. Like, where else do you think you that this is for, viable? For a specific piece, for instance, like in, in this uh, Dubai and mm. trash thing. So this technique was not actually, again, it was like a style transfer. So the idea is you, uh, it's still artificial and neural networks, but the idea is you have this uh, original image that you like. You also have a, an, an image of an artist or a texture or another, basically any other images, and the network will try to combine both. So to keep the original uh, say topology, so like structure of the the, the photo that you input it, input, but at the same at the same time replacing like the texture and the pattern with the the other artistic images. And so what I did for this uh, Dubai thing was to take a, a picture of like basically plastic bottle and trash, and it would stylize the buildings and uh, and having this very plastic, uh, disgusting plastic effect. But which was on the like, was the idea, right? And the idea was of course to talk about. Uh, global warming, what we do with plastic, uh, pollution, or ocean pollution, and things like this. And I would say in this regard, like the message here is more artistic in a way that it's a way to communicate the message about, okay, maybe I should not uh, trash, you know, put my plastic bottle in, in the sea, right? Maybe I should put it in the garbage bin. But I'm not sure if that answers your question. Or Well, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, a friend of mine who came up to SFI from San Francisco last spring, and took the the massive NVIDIA face set of all the, the, the fake faces that have been generated and then was able to use, let's say you like someone and their romantic partner and then was able to search that database 
and pull the faces that were most like their intersection. So you actually get some clue as to what your child might look like yes, so this, as an adult. Yes, yeah. So should we the uh, beautiful celebrities, right? So, oh yeah, I should definitely marry her, right? Because this, oh, our children all will look so beautiful. Right, it's better than <laughs> consulting the astrologer. Probably, yeah, but you're right. <laughs> if we meet, so we have to, you know, go in LA and right now. But yeah, uh, so we did this kind of experiments, and um, now what we can do now is if you can even upload the picture of yourself and see how the network will actually resynthesize it. So it's not perfect. But it, and it's also interesting because you can age yourself or get, get younger and do some old kind of experiment. And I think there was this face app now that was you can yeah it was a bit of a controversy because you're not really sure. But yeah, basically you have to put your phone number, I think, or your email, and and you're not not really sure where the image of your face uh, go, right? So there was the right about, about yeah that one and and Zhao, right? The Chinese there's like the question of whether the Russians and Chinese, you know, are are using this to train their own networks to accomplish some other unrelated Probably, right? yeah. But I'm but I'm, I'm this is I guess what I'm getting at is a little bit more of a speculative question, which is how do you imagine that this kind of thing like you know, virtual breeding and, and, you know, not just of people, but of ideas of, of data sets and so on might be used to help people make better predictions in the future or like to achieve other, like it is a little bit more artsy, but it does seem like it could be wielded in a really interesting way toward pointing people in, uh, you know, toward a productive avenue of research and I'm, I mean, I'm just yeah just it's off very, the cuff yeah, yeah. it's a difficult question i think it can i mean part of data art is about this about getting people interested in giving a message but at the same time it's very difficult to speculate about what the future may be right and at the same time because you introduce bias because if you put in a certain direction people as are will ask you and i've actually i had this question um uh, last week people have been asking me but are you manipulating people by selecting some just part of the data some of the subset and showing and i was like yeah i was like yeah but it's in a good way right because i'm legit right i'm a scientist so it's and of course it's not a very good answer but <laughs> but but the thing is there's always a bias if you do any kind of uh, visualization uh, you actually take a stand there's no nothing at uh, true objectivity anywhere when you read a newspaper uh, it's really it's far from being objective right so there's always uh, our own uh, a biasing that comes into play. So I think it could be used, but people should, I think the, the main thing here is that we uh, should be, uh, we could appreciate anything, but should be wary of, okay, what, there has been some trade-offs here, and uh, this is why it's better to get interested into the field so you can make sure that you make the right assumptions and you're not being manipulated too much because it's otherwise you always have this question of who is this guy? Uh, is it really legit or is, is it trying to manipulate manipulate me into uh, i don't know in doing something that maybe is stealing my my data right i have this question all the time oh you you're stealing data no i'm not you know but it's it's difficult especially for the general uh, public and you know, audience that they don't really understand uh, necessarily uh, all these these questions and if you have a headline facebook lost uh, 150 million uh, passwords then it's very hard to come and say, yeah, but I do art with big data. You see, you see, <laughs> the, you, you see the, the point, right? So I don't know. We need more of this, but it's, there's always a, uh, it's not really objective. Yeah. You know, I, so this, this seems uh, to touch in on a question. I asked the, uh, the SFI Facebook group if they had any questions for you right before we got on to this. this. And, uh, and one of them came from uh, one of our volunteer moderators, Tim Clancy. So he says, we often overfocus on techniques in the sciences, but sometimes the best advice comes from approaches that are technique generic, how to define a problem, how to understand audiences, identify boundaries, etc. And he, he wanted to know, do you have advice on improving communication with data art, things to consider and noodle before diving in with a specific technique or presentation style. I mean, obviously, the question of like, am I creating an emotionally manipulative movie trailer that's going to make you make you cry no matter who you are? And like, who am I serving with this? You just address that. But zooming out a little further, I, I think what he might be asking is in part, are there consistencies in the heuristics that you use to determine what data you leave in? what you exclude, how you decide to, to represent these things? Uh, it's very difficult. No, I, I found, uh, how would I say that? So obviously there are some dimensions that 
that are interesting to explore because they have more they have more uh, variability for instance so this is good you know that if it's there's a big changes it's going to be interesting in the visual if it's like uh, average and everything is uh, very similar to each other then it's going to be very cluttered and it's not going to be very interesting so i would say that you try to look for dimensions that are that are interesting to visualize and have more variability but other than that yeah as you said it's about who is the target audience and uh, what are their background so it, it's a bit difficult if you make an art piece because you cannot really choose uh, the audience but when you give presentation this is why i, I give presentation because uh, i think it's easier to understand the whole data art thing if you if you have the the guy explaining to you what, not necessarily what it means but how it was made actually so to 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 get interested in, in the science we go back to this and uh, i'm not sure if i have any more uh, uh, techniques instead of regular database principles so the audience the storytelling part so who is it for uh, then okay what dimensions could be interesting to visualize and how they relate to the original storytelling and message that i wanted to make this is what we do all the time in database if you do data journalism for instance on the new york times they have before trying to do anything they have an id and they have to validate whether or not it works in the data but it's not like yeah, I would say it's a bit different than what we do in scientific visualization. Or here we use, we explore data, and then we find new patterns, and then we investigate. But in most uh, articles that you see online, it's, there's a, and they already have a headline, so they, they know what they are looking for. And uh, it doesn't mean that you cheat. Huh? It doesn't mean that you select part of the data. It, it means that you always have an opinion, and it, you cannot make something out of, uh, out of uh, being completely objective. So I don't necessarily have a, a technique uh, with so I would say standard, um, I don't know, techniques that we have, but um, not something specific, I don't know. Leading with the opinion versus finding results in the data, is that the only difference, or are there other significant differences between communicating to a scientific audience versus communicating to the general public? So, uh, if you talk to a scientific audience, it's going to be tougher, <laughs> as we saw today in the talk. And people, you know, because they, no, and it's a legitimate question, they want to ask, okay, but is it really useful? I mean, uh, do we have a market for this kinds of, of work? And of course the answer is yes. But uh, as you can see, for instance, a lot of exhibition, even trade shows, CES, they had some like artistic data uh, visualizations. So there is a market, of course. But when you talk to the general uh, public, think about it. If you go to a museum, how often do you read the description? Right? Not, not that much. Huh? It's, so how can you make sure that your piece stands out so you need to be have something good impact, strong impact visually. So to make sure that people at least they go towards the room because they see it from afar. Then you have to make sure that they read the description, which is very difficult to do. And this is you know sometimes I go undercover and I look at people and I see that they don't read the description and I'm, I'm pissed off because like read it it's it's better it's like <laughs> half of the, half of the work is in the description because you understand that it, it's real. This is why I, I switch to a different approach and try to talk and to explain the, the pieces because and you cannot uh, skip me, basically. So you have to listen to what I say. It's not the same approach here. You, you have one message. If you want to make for the general audience, you have to be very uh, clear about the message that you want to... And people, basically, they take what they want from the, from the piece. Sometimes they only like the aesthetics. I've been running a study and asking people whether the message was important, and people said yes. But, of course, some of them said, no, I, I just... If it's beautiful, I like it. It's, it's cool, huh? but it's not exactly the point. So, I <laughs> But for a scientific audience here... They, uh, they have this analytic mind, and, and it's, it's good, right? So they have to know whether it's efficient, uh, whether people will like it. And this is why I started this uh, study, data art study, or uh, have more or less a scientific study of whether or not people find value in data art, and what is this value? Is it, and for instance, people have been saying, okay, the question was, is it different from other visual arts? And, and does it add something uh, to other, from, from other visual arts? And people have been saying yes at 75%. So it's a very small number of participants, 200, I'm sorry. But, <laughs> but it's, it's growing. And so I found it in interesting. So this is why I try to approach also data art as a scientific practice. And people have been actually publishing papers in the database community about this. So there is people interested into the effect, the perception that we have. And I'm trying to be in both for it. So when I talk to scientists, I have to show data facts. When I talk to the general audience, I just to, I have to show you show emotions and have something compelling so people who actually go and read the whole thing. Mm. So it seems like in both cases, and I think we've been kind of 
dancing around this the whole time. In both cases, it has to do with how much information a person can take in at any given time and how the way that you represent that information is able to exploit people's attentional biases. Like I, you know, it, it's, it's common, uh, you know, you, in journalism, they say, you know, you don't ask more than three questions in a row. I forget who it was, but there, it was an interesting project that I circulated in-house here at SFI, where this team had redesigned the poster presentation at scientific conferences so that it, it was just very bold and, and colorful and actually very low information content. And then it pointed people to all of this stuff on some website that you could go to if you really wanted to know more. It became more of an advertisement for the research than an attempt to cram everything onto a poster at which point you're just lost in the noise at these conferences. Like it, all of that information just gets, just becomes uh, t- television static. Exactly. And if you look at actually at the best, you know, there's in, when you go to conferences, there's a best poster award. And usually the, the winners are the ones who have less text, more visuals and linked to the, the actual papers or, and, and maybe the QR code or something like this. So I think there's a nice blend between like design would be good to have designers also help scientists to make uh, more impactful communication because otherwise it's a lot of text as you said do you uh, really want to go close read it's font eight and you have to read all the line. it's not very fun so you talk to the guy but it's a it's very noisy so it's not very efficient <laughs> and, I mean, it's true right? yeah. so here we take the opposite approach we give something very visual and we let people if they are really interested in uh, look at, look it up online basically. So, I mean, this seems to be how you would articulate this argument that you pointed to at the end of your talk where you said it's becoming more and more important for people to take seriously the science that suggests this as an improvement on communication techniques. And specifically when it comes to the people that are reviewing just hundreds and hundreds of research grant applications, for example, how do you get your project to the top of that stack? You know, how do you get people to actually pay attention to you? And so to me, as someone with background in both the arts and sciences, it seems obvious, but I just want to hear more from you about how this seems like you're on the winning side of history here insofar as, as like, like you said, like the design is now a part of the way that we have to even request for the, the kind of support that it requires to do this research exactly. and that there's an arms race going on here in an attention starved global system that in a weird way is bringing art and science back under the same roof as necessary facets of each other's work. Because frankly, as, as an artist and designer, there is this thing of like, if you don't include the scientific, it also is not as strong, you know? And I, I hate to, you know, I know a lot of fine artists whose work I love, but it, at the same time, like, I don't think their work has the, the, the broad appeal, the stickiness, the depth that it could, if it were touching into this other stuff as well. So, I mean, what are, you said you've got friends that are researching this right now. Like what kind of, what, what are their findings? And, so, and what, so, yeah. So two things, you know, just in Europe, for instance, if you want to ask for a grant, uh, for to conduct uh, research, they ask you specifically, what are you going to do to make sure that you communicate about this research? So there's something, and then you have to justify it. Otherwise you don't get the funding. So this is something that is, uh, it's not like made up. It's actually part of the, the papers here, the, the things that you have to write to make sure that people will, because it's taxpayers' money, right? So you have to make sure that they get something back. And so uh, being able to uh, do uh, data art is actually most of my uh, work and clients are actually like scientific institutions, and they used it to promote the paper. So I had this professor asking me to create the piece because he wanted to publish in Nature. And so he'd say, if I have a good, a strong visual that makes sense because it's based on real data, I have a stronger chance of getting accepted because it's always cool to have a, a nice visual to illustrate. And it's not so. so there is a there is a, first there is a market, but there's also a real appeal, and people understand this. And another facet is also social media, which is weird if you think about it. But I mean, <laughs> we are all you, we are humans, right? You, we you, we are scientists, but we still have Twitter, right? And something that I wanted to con- uh, conduct as a research, so it's something that is uh, just starting, is how much the, the social media influence uh, I mean, changes the way you're cited, basically. Mm. And may, so uh, people will scream, I think, when hearing this. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, but uh, research is about uh, peer-reviewed and real science. Yeah, of course. 
but I'm sure that if you, are, you have a guide making sure that you have a good uh, social communication, you will get cited more just because you have more exposure. So maybe the work is a bit less uh, good than the other, but if they have better at communicating, you lose. Yeah, actually, I did, there was a James Evans, another one of our external professors, was on a team that published uh, kind of related findings, looking at citation networks. You're looking at people who publish at a prestigious institution might be publishing the same findings, more or less, as someone who's who's not. But then again, it is an unpleasant fact of the world that these things matter. You exactly. know, and also not only your name, because you know most things are. The double blind but it's not really true you know who the guy is and so depending on the institution whether or not you're friends with the guy it, it also has a big impact on the uh, publication everyone every scientist will know it. sometimes you publish exactly the same paper and you get rejected for nothing and that, there was a study on you know Neurip's uh, um, acceptance rate and they did a study with so basically they put the paper in two different sets of reviewers and to see whether or not the paper was accepted and I think the result was actually weird like half of the time it would get rejected and one of the, uh, half of the time it would get accepted but for the, exactly the same paper for the same conference so showing the <laughs> randomness of acceptance and so you need other uh, factors to to also have your research uh, i mean shown to others now it's cool you have archives you can uh, put preprints online and let people decide whether or not they are wor it's worth it but it's it's basically it's it, the whole thing ties to how we now uh, do science because b before you had prestigious journals you had, it was very expensive it's still very expensive to publish there but now people are asking for more open access you know open science open data so i think this is uh, shifting and in this world of anyone can publish basically you need also ways to stand out and to have something the strong visuals to make sure that people will actually read your paper because if you have hundred thousand papers to read you're human you, you will probably find one that has a, a good title and like nice images and then you will start to read and see whether or not it's a good paper so i think as you said it now we put art and science under the same roof just to have our research discovered i would say so karen rhodes was at your talk today and she wanted me to ask you uh, when i when i pulled for follow-up questions she wanted me to ask you if you are aware of publications uh, or you know data of some form that visualization actually helps people grasp and remember the information that they're yes. being presented with. Yeah. Yes, yes. There is a, a, a nice paper, and I forget the name, it's called Chart Junk, uh, Chart Junk, the effect of visual embellishment. And if it's a, uh, so you can look it up online. Uh, I'm not sure. And, and the idea is that it was exactly this. So it was not about data art, it was about data viz itself. Uh, use, yeah, this Useful thing. junk, yeah. We'll link to this in the show notes. And the idea was, so they, they took some uh, illustration from journals and they, they asked people, so there was, you know, a study and whether or not the, the, the fact that it was embellished. So there was like, if you look at the paper, you would see there's one is a monster about the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the other, so the one is the, uh, about, there's a monster because it's about monstrous costs. And the other one is just the, the same information as a simple plain bar chart. And they asked people whether or not they remember five minutes after the information, and people would say, okay, it's the same. But then they asked two or three weeks later whether or not they, they would remember what this was about. And as you would expect, the charts with the, with the visual, so the illustration or the funny things, and people would help people remember uh, the, 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 the data and the subject much better. And this is also one of the papers that, uh, that I used to motivate the data art uh, study, basically. But th there's a downside. So it, it's good for impact and for engagement. But of course, if you now publish a new study on, on cancer research and you put some meme with the data, it's not going to look serious. So this is where you have to make, draw the line between being very serious and be able to communicate to a general audience. It's, and I think we can find a, a common ground. So basically helping scientists to make better, to learn more about database so they have better effective charts and, and keep the more, um, I would say, uh, fun, funky, uh, more beautiful visualizations for the when we do like mass communication. I'm sure if that makes sense. Well, so you know, I think about this, you know, to turn it uh, inward on the scientific process also, and not just about communicating results. There's a Chernoff faces, which is this whole thing of the fact that the human attentional system is tuned to face data, 
And there's, you know, in particular, I, I, I gave David Krakauer here a, uh, a copy of one of my favorite science fiction novels, Blind Sight by Peter Watts, in which uh, one of the characters is a vampire and his data visualization cockpit is human is tormented human faces. So like rather than graphs or, you know, various like network diagrams, the best way for him it, it, and it's a, it's a dark joke on what is actually probably, I, I would imagine, uh, going to be a growing trend. And I'm curious what you think, because, you know, some of your stuff, you know, your GANs involved simulating human faces that in theory you could then, you know, use as templates for a much richer and higher dimensional set of data than you might with some other forms of data visualization. And so I'm curious, you know, there's, the, the sort of dark side of this person does not exist.com is that, you know, you're going to start getting phone calls from people that don't exist and so on. But the bright side is that we can really hijack the human bias for faces in a way that helps us learn by representing data in the form of a face. And I'm, I'm just curious what you, it's very meta, but yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's cool. I mean, um, uh, yeah, so first, yeah, the deep fakes, uh, yeah, it's going to be a real issue. Uh, we agree, but so the people, of course, are fighting this. So you have, at the same time, people generating faces and showing uh, mostly a scientist and on the same time developing new techniques to uh, check whether or not the image is fake or not. But um, yes, the, 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 the biggest downside of this is that maybe like video evidence will be gone, basically, right? Because you cannot say, no, it's fake. It's not me. It wasn't me. Right. The, the, yeah. the song, right? So this, 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 uh, this is a, it's a big issue. But of course, it's going to, you know, cat and mouse, you play and you have techniques that, this, that check whether or not this is fake. Or but it's always going to be like cybersecurity, right? You have a new uh, uncrackable software a week later. It's cracked. So you have to, it's going to be like this. And going back to your question, it, yes, uh, it's, faces are... I mean, we're very good at, at discerning if something is wrong with the face. And this is why when you, even with the most uh, top uh, movies in uh, Star Wars, for instance, there's some weird artifacts that we see, for instance, when they try to uh, make uh, uh, Carrie Fisher younger, for instance, right? Or you, it looks real, but it's, there's something wrong. And I think it's the micro-expressions that are wrong. Mm -hmm. But as we develop the technology, we're going to be able to do something completely perfect, right? So, but I'm not, I'm not sure if, if it's really ethical to play with faces but it, the cool thing is because we're going to be able to uh, create new faces yeah we're going to be less biased for like diversity it's going to be helpful to to be able to to play with that but um, i'm not really sure if we, if we should yeah well i mean just you know i, I think it, i mean you're right that it does get back to this issue of how much are we exploiting the viewer but you know at the same time there are so many issues now involving like radiation spills or other forms of ecological catastrophe or natural disasters or whatever that because of the scale or because of the abstraction of the issue, they don't register with people. And so like, you know, I, I just think about what it's going to take uh, to motivate people to act when they, I mean, this is, so this is self, this, I'm, I'm, no, no, I'm you know, I'm, I'm Luke Skywalkering here on the edge of the dark side, <laughs> but like, you know, if you could make, a face that is the Gulf of Mexico, it's and then exactly, the, I'm, I'm going to tell you. Yeah, what you're saying is exactly what the project that we had in mind for. Um, so we work with the GIEC, which is I'm not sure in English. The, you know the the committee that that creates the paper for the COP25. You know that the recommendation that we should keep under 1.5 degrees and things like this. So this is a committee, mm. and they they go to Europe and they ask them uh, basically to write. A, the, the report is impossible. There are 400 pages and no one reads, of course. There's like no images and there's very scientific plots that no one understands. And I said, okay, and I've been contacted with one of those guys to create, uh, let's see if we could make data art to make the message go, uh, mean, be simpler. And I had this idea of actually taking the face that you are looking at right now on Instagram and, and, and having half of it uh, completely, because we have GANs, so we can uh, put people, get people older, younger, and uh, like, transform them into monsters and have something like a monstrous <laughs> face that will grow according to the temperature uh, rising because we don't do actually do much to reduce the, the pollution. And so I wanted to use the, I don't know, I, so it's still in the, I didn't do it, um, but maybe you're right, maybe it depends what you want to do because I want to get close to the scientific uh, word, but in this case, maybe we just need to, you know, 
get strike a big hit on the whole thing and say we should use faces people recognize faces we should deform and look ugly you know like a special effect makeup when they they create this or horrible faces and then you have this uh, this tension you don't like it but at the same time it's fascinating and maybe this will help people act but um, i don't know yeah maybe yeah. i should try it and ask and see the reaction Right. Yeah. I mean, well, I'm thinking of, uh, was it Japan? I forget who did it, where they took the speed limit signs. And then rather than it just flashing and warning you when you're going over the speed limit, it had a smiley face that turned into a frowning face. And it was just like a little cartoon. But they found that the social reinforcement of having even a cartoon smile at you when you're doing the responsible thing or frowning at you when you're putting other people at risk dramatic improvement over just threatening with people with punishment social pressure because you recognize a face right and right yeah so the, the thought of like you know your virtual assistant we, most of us already have yeah that your virtual assistant is going to judge you when you you know that, that people opt into this that it becomes like a gamified thing like your diet like you would face app you, you know you see yourself with acne or with another 50 pounds or whatever and I don't know. That's we're completely off center from like where this podcast normally goes. But I think that, you know, you work at such a juicy, interesting intersection of, of, uh, techniques and possibilities. So thanks for indulging this. Thank you very much. Yeah. What, uh, what are you working on now? What's on the horizon for you right now? Two things. I'm still working with GANs and, um, so the thing is for now, the GANs that we have are very low res. So the maximal, uh, maximum resolution that you get is basically 1,024 pixels uh, square. So it's not really much. So I've been investigating, in, investigating using other AI technique to uh, do super resolution, basically. So we have very high resolution onto smaller mod models. And of course, we started creating more and more, I would say, artistic um, results from GANs. So it's something that you would not necessarily recognize when you look at it. it. It could look beautiful, but you have no idea the different ingredients in it in, uh, that, that compose the this image so you have to once again click look it up and ah it's, it's funny I, I there's like 14 percent of jellyfish in this image i don't really see it but okay maybe now that you tell me that this, there, there are some jellyfish in here okay i see it so so this is one part and the other part that i'm uh, really focusing on is uh, going back to fractals so math because as i, as I said in the talk um it, it was popular in like late 80s uh, beginning of the 90s and now and nothing happened afterwards and now the software that we have to create fractals, it's, it's, it's awesome. It's really, the, the possibilities are endless. And what I try to do, because, okay, fractals are mathematical functions, but I need, I work with data. So it's true, I try to blend both fractals and data. So fractal data art, wow, it's a fancy keyword. And this is what I did when one piece, or what I, the idea that I found was to do, the, so the image was generated by just fractals, but the animation itself was parameterized uh, with data. So. Uh, for, if you look it up, the animation, so one piece is about uh, uh, sea level increase by because the glaciers are melting, because it's global warming, as you know. So the idea here is that the animation, you would see like something like looks like a coral shape, more or less, and it will grow according to the increase of the, of, uh, the, the sea level, basically. So I try to combine both data in the end, and what I like about fractals is that the images are very uh, it's infinite resolution, basically. It's just you, have, you need to have a very big computer. And so it's very aesthetic. People love fractals. And, but um, not like the usual Mandelbrot things. And there's something more, you, you have to look it up to see what people are doing. It's, it's beautiful. So people like it because it's beautiful. But at the same time, we give back meaning to this. So it's, you talk about math, you talk about data, and you have this animation. You have every comp everything that you need. Something that moves, something that's beautiful, and that's meaning. And so this is something that I want to really investigate some more because I find it really interesting. Yeah, yet that piece in particular actually reminded me of, if you know, Scott Drave's Electric Sheep. So like back in 2005, he started doing this screensaver that everyone running the this, this screensaver was contributing to the, the computation of the next few seconds of the animation. And so then people would vote up and down and it evolves over time. And it's, it's, it's gone through this extraordinary nonlinear uh, trajectory where it would gain complexity and then it would collapse and be very simple over the last 15 years. But you've got the sort of high resolution and narrative version rather than just this sort of random walk through design space that is represented in his stuff. So anyway, just, just in case people uh, know Electric Sheep, 
and then that's you know that's kind of what this looked like but it was also sort of ominous as like the thing grows and you realize it's rising sea levels and it's like an oncoming train you know <laughs> so it was yeah well oh gosh anyway uh Carell, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you where do you want to send people and, and do you want to leave them with any kind of parting thoughts First, thank you for having me. It was really uh, a great, I mean, even the, the campus here, it's awesome. It's the best uh, research center I've ever seen. So people, if you don't know here, it, it's beautiful. It's like the scenery, everything is great. The people is great. Everyone is great. And so if uh, you guys are interested in, to, in learning more about what I do, I strongly suggest that you visit my website, uh, uh, kirelbenzi.com. And you, also if you have ideas and collaborations, this is something that I really uh, look for. If you have, like, scientists here, uh, anyone uh, that that is interested in having this research, uh, you know, and investigate together if we can make some art pieces with this. Because I'm a scientist, but I, I don't do much science now. What I do is that I make the bridge between scientists and uh, the general uh, public here. So I need also scientists to uh, co collaborate with me to and give me par part of their research so we can make new pieces. So if you guys are interested, I mean, I'm, I'm, all, I'm, all, I'm all in. Awesome. Thank you so Thank much. You desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.